All right, Judges chapter 9. We're uh, in a place tonight where actually we're not going to be looking specifically at any judges. We ended our study of the last judge in the series of judges that are given in the book of Judges, and that was Gideon. Remember, Gideon um, had judged the people of Israel for a very long time, about 40 years, judging them after he had defeated the Midianites. The defeat of the Midianites was probably one of the most uh, amazing military victories given in the book of Judges in terms of the number of soldiers that he had to come against, 135,000 Midianites and the uh, Amalekites and the men of the east that were gathered together to come against the nation of Israel. And he only had the 300 men. It was a tremendous victory, one of the most awesome portions of the book of Judges uh, recorded for us so far and probably until we get to Samuel, uh, the most impressive of all of the judges. Now, we're finding out that at the end of chapter 8, we saw Gideon had died. But before he died, he had gotten married to a lot of women, apparently, and he had a total of 70 sons by those many women. And he also had one son by a concubine who was not an Israelite woman. She was from Shechem, and she was a Canaanite woman. We'll see that that plays into the story as we move forward in chapter 9 that we'll be looking at at tonight. But that 71st son was mentioned in chapter 8, verse 31, where it says, His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now, I wanted to reiterate that earlier on in his victory against the Midianites, the people of Israel wanted to make Gideon to be a king over all of the nation. But Gideon was very, very emphatic. And he said again in chapter 8, verse 24, Gideon said to them, uh, rather verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, but the Lord shall rule over you. In other words, Gideon emphatically rejected the idea of any man becoming a king over Israel because God was to be their king. That was known by Gideon. It was known by the people of God throughout their time up to this point. And Gideon did not want to usurp that authority that belonged only to God. However, those 40 years had passed and there seems to be a a bit of a waning of Gideon's mindset with regard to the things of God. And that is seen by the number of wives that he ended up having and the naming of that one prodigal, one uh, concubine's son that he called by the name Abimelech, which we said, and remember, we talked about it briefly last time, that name is translated from the Hebrew to our English, my father is king. My father is king. So he named his son a name that implied that he thought of himself anyway, after all those years, as a king. However, he didn't ever reign on a throne in Israel during that period of time of his life. There was still no king in Israel. He chose not to take that authority, which belonged to God, but did so sort of by name or insinuation by calling his son that name Abimelech. Well, Abimelech plays into the story in chapter 9, and it's not a very good thing that we're going to be looking at tonight. Tonight is going to show us how deeply depraved the people had become over a very short period of time. And again, referring back to the last verses in chapter 8, where we read in verse 33, So it was, as soon as Gideon died, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. They went right back as soon as he was gone. He no longer had an influence in Israel because he was dead. And as soon as he was dead, the people turned back to the other gods 
of the Canaanites that they worshipped so many times before. And it turns out that that's going to become a major issue throughout their history up until the Babylonian captivity. But here it is now about 200 years after Joshua and we've already seen that cycle five times where the Lord would bless them and they would in their prosperity turn away from God and then when they turned away from God, God would allow an oppressive state uh, to uh, impact them terribly and then when they were crying out to God in their uh, oppression, then God would restore them. He would respond by sending them a deliverer. There's a pause in that cycle that begins here in chapter 9 through the end of the chapter, as we will see. There's going to be a discussion by the writer of the book of Judges of some of that terrible depravity that actually did take place during that time of falling away from God. And it is a terrible thing to see. And it begins with the man that was born of Gideon, whose name was Abimelech. It says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers, or relatives, and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbaal reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. Now he's in the city of Shechem. Shechem is in the territory of Ephraim. And Gideon was from Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh that dwelt on the western side, the Canaanite side of the Jordan River. He comes down from Manasseh into the town of Shechem where his mother has family. She again is a Canaanite and the majority of people in Shechem are still the Canaanites. They were never defeated by Ephraim. They were allowed to live in Shechem. They continued to live there. And it's interesting that Gideon would have married a Gentile woman and had a son by that woman. And now that son is going to her family and making a proposition. He is kind of an outcast in Gideon's family. If Gideon had had 70 sons, and he did, and probably many daughters, this one must have thought, there's no chance that I'm going to have any kind of influence in the nation of Israel unless I do something very, very soon to circumvent that problem. So he's devised a plan. And he's come now to Shechem, where his mother has a family, and he introduces himself and reminds them that he is part of their family in a sense, even though he's the son of Gideon, so a half Jew, half Canaanite, he influences their decision because of his relationship with them. He comes to them with this proposal again, which is better for you that all the 70 sons of Jerubbaal reign over you or that one reign over you. There was no indication in the scripture or anywhere that we can tell that that was going to ever be a problem. Because remember, Gideon had said that my sons will not rule over you. He made that commitment. And now this son of Gideon is trying to convince the people in Shechem that the other 70 sons of Gideon have that goal in mind. That's, that's a false narrative. But he also says that it is better for me to reign over you because after all, I'm part of your family. That's not a reason to be considered for leadership. But that kind of influence is very common. You know, I'm reminded in our own country, 
we have a government that is a two-party system. And the party that's now in control is letting a large number of immigrants into the country through an open-door policy that really has gotten out of hand. Everyone recognizes that fact. But one of the biggest problems with that, from my perspective, is the fact that those people that are being allowed into our nation are being given free medical care, they're being provided a place to stay, and they're being told that they will be able to vote. Now, who are they going to vote for if they've been given all of these freebies by the current administration and their policies? The answer pretty clearly would be that the millions of people who have crossed over into our country illegally are likely, if they are allowed to vote, going to vote for that party that gave them so many wonderful gifts. That's the same principle that is being applied here by this man, Abimelech. He's going to his family and telling them, hey, because we're brothers and sisters, I can make it better for you. And that is an appealing thing for people who have been living in oppression for any length of time. So it tells us in verse 3, his mother's relatives or brothers, and by the way, uh, it says relatives in some of the translations, but the word really is brother. Um, I, I'm not really exactly sure why the word relatives is used in some of the other translations, but it's okay. It's still the same idea. It's just not as specific. But I've got the word brothers in my translation. That's the, probably the one that I'm going to use for the rest of this time. It says in verse 3, His mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bereth. By the way, that was the god that they had begun to worship. One of the Baals, and in that territory, it was the Baal called Baal Bereth. It was their god. And they had built a temple there in Shechem. They had built a tower in Shechem. And they were worshiping that god. And they've got money, much money available from that temple worship. And they give him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal, with which he was able to hire what we're seeing here, worthless and reckless men. And they followed him. That's also a bad sign. Sons of Belial. We've seen that often in the scripture. And many, many times, when somebody wants to do something of an evil nature, they usually will bring together with themselves men or sons of Belial, men who are worthless and reckless men. And they followed him. They paid, or they got paid a very good sum of money, and they were happy to do whatever it was that Abimelech wanted them to do. So, it tells us in verse 5, he went to his father's house at Ophrah, that's in Manasseh, and killed all of his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbaal, one by one on a single stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left because he hid himself. Now again, I neglected to mention the name Jerubbaal was given to Gideon by his father. And that was a name that's used interchangeably with Gideon throughout the text. But now he's been referred to as Jerubbaal in most of the places that we have here in this context. Well, it says in verse 6, And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. Now, this is a very local event. The city of Shechem is located again in Ephraim. It's not the entire nation of Israel that's being impacted here. As is the case with many of the stories in the book of Judges, it is a very local event. Now, he is definitely not given the title of a deliverer, nor is he given the title of judge. He's not been appointed this position by God. It's the people of Shechem that have chosen to make him their ruler. And he's influenced other peoples in the small towns around 
the city of Shechem, like Beth Milo. And he has been made to be their king. That's what he wanted. Notice also that in the previous verses, in verse 5, we found that there was one son of Gideon who survived because he hid himself. So either he's the 71st son, because it keeps telling us that Gideon's 70 sons were killed, or that could be just a rounded number. It does tell us in verse 30 of chapter 8 that Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring. So it's pretty clear from that context that this son of Gideon, Jotham, was one of 70, but he only was able to escape. The rest of the 70, the 69 other brothers, were killed. But it says that Jotham had escaped, and he plays a very brief role in the context of this story that we're going to be looking at tonight. Because it tells us in verse 7, now, when they told Jotham that he was, that Abimelech was made king, they told Jotham about that, and he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out, and he said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. It's very important to recognize that Jotham was a believer in Jehovah God. And what he's beginning to open up here in this portion of Scripture is the fact that there is a hope for the people of Shechem and the surrounding area if they would turn back to God and stop what they are doing. That was God's mercy being offered to them. Once again, God never fails to offer His mercy and grace to those who have slipped away and followed after other gods. So it is with this group of people that live in Shechem. Mount Gerizim is one of two mountains that are very well known to us already from the scriptures that we have read in the book of Joshua. Remember, it was there that Moses told Joshua, when you get into the land, you are to go into the valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ephraim, uh, Mount uh, Ebal, rather, and it is there that on one mountain you will pronounce blessings, on the opposite mountain you will pronounce curses. And they did that according to the record found in the book of Joshua. Now, the one mountain, Mount Gerizim, which overlooks the city of Shechem, which is in that valley between those two mountains, and it, because of the way that that valley is formed between the two mountains, somebody speaking from the top of Mount Gerizim can easily be heard by all the people in the valley. It's like an amphitheater effect. And so... Jotham has come to the top of that mountain and he begins to make this proclamation. And by the way, it is a parable. It's really the very first parable recorded in the history books of the Old Testament. The book of Judges contains the very first parable given in those books. And this parable is laid out in a very, very beautiful fashion. He's talking about the different kinds of trees and shrubs that grow in Israel. The first one, found in verse 8, is the olive tree. And he begins the parable by saying this, The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men? and go to sway over trees? Think back again to what Gideon had said. I will not reign over you. I've got a different purpose that God has chosen for me. It is not to reign over you as king. It is to be your judge and deliverer. And he represented God, but God was still on the throne of Israel. So this is a type, if you will, of Gideon, as are the other two that follow. The olive tree also is a type of the nation of Israel found in the scriptures, as well as the next two types that are following this particular one. So this is simply 
a way of recognizing that Jotham is saying something through this parabolic phrase that should give them a hint as to what it is that he's trying to convey. And that's what a parable does. It allows you to make use of common things that people are fully aware of so that you can refer to them as a symbol of something that you want to make plain to them. The next one in verse 9 says, or verse 10 says, Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees, other trees? No, I can't do that. I've been appointed a particular task by God, and I'm not going to remove myself from that task, that God-given task, to do something that I've not been created for. It's not for me to do that. So the fig tree rejects the offer as well. So then he goes on and says in verse 12, Then the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? And again, the implication is, No, I'm not going to do that. I've got a different purpose that God has made me for. I will not do what God has not called me to do. And that is something that we should take very close care in our lives to never, ever do anything that God has not called us to do, to become anything that God has not called us to become. There are many who have been misled by people who have been said to be called of God when the calling definitely was not from God, and it shows in the results of that false calling. Always has, always will. But now he reaches the point where he wants to insert this, which is something that they should have understood and responded positively to, but they would not respond in the way that they should have. It says in verse 14, Then all the trees said to the bramble, a thorn bush, if you will, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. What a joke that is. That is so, so very clearly an impossibility. A bramble bush does not project hardly any shade at all. And this bramble, full of pride, is saying, Come, all of you huge trees, rest in my shade that I will provide. And then he gives, the bramble gives this warning. If you will not let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So the trees are likened to the tall cedar trees of Lebanon. And in this passage, there is a challenge by Jotham that says, if you follow after this bramble, you will be burned in fire. That will be fulfilled. But not only that, now he, after giving that parable, gives his explanation. And he says in verse 16, Now therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dwelt, or dealt rather, with Jerubbaal and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, did he deserve to lose all seventy sons? No. For my father fought for you, he says, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day, and killed his seventy sons on one stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. So he says, fine, if you think that's right, go for it. You've got it. You've been given the option. You've chosen that. You've taken that which you should not have taken. You've done that which you should not have done. The warning has been made. But go ahead. If that's the way you want to do it, go ahead and do it. You make the choice. God always helps 
us to make right choices. But we don't always make right choices. God always provides a way for us to escape temptation. But we don't always take that way of escape. We're human. They were human. But they were following after the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals of the Canaanites. They wanted nothing to do with their God. Even though God had given them an opportunity, they rejected that opportunity. It is so very clear in the Scripture. The Scripture over and over says, you must choose good versus evil. You must choose right versus wrong. You must choose light versus darkness. You must choose wisdom versus folly. The choice is always ours to make. God gave Adam a choice. God gave every one of us a choice. May it be that everyone continues to make the right choices. Oh, we all made the right choice with regard to our accepting Christ as our Lord and Savior. Praise the Lord. But there are daily choices that we must continue to make. I'd like to take a moment to break away from the study in the book of Judges to turn with me if you will, to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 9, where I'm going to read pretty much the whole proverb. It's not that long, but it's a very important proverb that gives a sense of what we've been talking about with regard to right and wrong, light and darkness, good and evil. Chapter 9 of the book of Proverbs is about wisdom and folly. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 9 of the book of Proverbs, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed, forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. So the offer is made by wisdom to take full advantage of the free gifts that are being given. And it is wonderful. We look at the things that are being offered. There are things that are pleasurable. There are things that are right. There are things that bring comfort and peace and joy. And she says at the end, forsake foolishness and live. So this is what I have to offer. But foolishness has something different to offer. Forsake it. And live. If you accept what foolishness has to offer, you shall surely die. So, it continues on in the same psalm. And gives us the opposite offer. The offer of folly. And it says in verse 13, A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house, on a seat by the highest places of the city, to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Oh, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding is a warning of wisdom. The result of folly is death. These men in Shechem have made a choice, and they followed folly and not wisdom. Well, it says in verse 20, but, again, Jotham is still speaking, if not, if you don't think that this is the right path, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come down from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled. And he went to Beir and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So we'll never hear from Jotham again. But he's given this grand word, this parable, that shows the people of Shechem, you've got to make a choice. You either make the right choice or you make the wrong choice. You've got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan said. It is true. You've got to serve somebody. Joshua had long before this said very plainly, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
That is the direction that all believers in Christ have made and should continue to make daily as we live out our lives for His glory. But note the results of their disobedience. Not only will the men of Shechem suffer, but Abimelech will suffer by fire and they will die according to this prophetic word of Jotham. And the rest of the book of chapter 9 in the book of Judges lays out for us the terrible results of their choice. It tells us in verse 22, after Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years. Now think about that. Jotham had given that warning. Three years went by. Abimelech has been the king over Shechem and things apparently have been going pretty well for them. They must have thought, ha, Jotham, who is he? He was wrong. Look at us. We're prospering. We're doing well. Abimelech is our king. He's been good to us. Well, that's about to change. Just after three years, you know, God waited three years for them to repent. He gave them that option. Remember, he said in verse 7, Jotham speaking, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. He was waiting to hear them cry out to him. But they didn't. And as a result, it tells us very, very sadly, in verse 23, God sent a spirit of ill will, an evil spirit, between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So God stirred up the hearts of the men of Shechem to come against Abimelech. After three years, they began to realize, hey, it's not so good after all. And they decided that they didn't really want Abimelech to be their king anymore. They made a mistake. A mistake realized too late. But God sent the evil spirit. God released an evil spirit, allowed that evil spirit to do that which caused division. And he says in verse 24 that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in the killing of his brothers. So God is taking vengeance finally after three years on the death of Gideon's 70 sons. The blood that was shed cried out to him from the ground, just as Cain and Abel, when Abel's blood shed, was crying out to God, so it was, so with the blood of these men. So it is with the blood of all the righteous. Jesus recognized that when he talked to the Pharisees and scribes when he said that you're just as guilty as all of your ancestors from the blood of Abel to the blood of uh, Zechariah whom you slew behind the altar. The blood cries out even today for all the innocents that have been slain, the babies in the womb, the innocent people in wars, Terrible things have happened in the world and are happening today. But God hears every cry. Well, verse 23, 25 says, And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against Abimelech on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by along the way. And it was told Abimelech. Now, Gaal, the son of Ebed, first introduced here, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them. And they made merry. They had a party. And they went into the house of their god, the temple of Baal Beareth, and they ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. It seems like they're having a drunken party. And as they get further and more stooped in their intoxication, they get more and more angry about Abimelech having been made their king. And Gaal, this man from a town not far from Shechem, apparently has incited them into this great angry mob that's being formed. And he says in verse 28, Then Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, 
Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal and is not Zebul his officer? Now Zebul is the governor of Shechem. He's living in that city, even though Abimelech is now a little bit further away from the city of Shechem, whatever he is involved in at the moment. But notice what he says at the end of verse 28. Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? You may remember in the book of Genesis, the name Hamor. He was the father of the people in Shechem in the days of Jacob. When Jacob came back into the land of Canaan, after having spent so many years in Laban's house, he finally arrived in Shechem, and it's there that he settled down. And it's Hamor with whom he had an interaction where he actually had bought some land and also ended up finding one of his, two of his sons killing Hamor's son and the rest of the men in Shechem in that very, very bad situation long ago, recorded for us in the book of Genesis. Now this man, Gaal, is saying, look, you're descendants of Hamor, more than you are descendants of Gideon. In fact, you're not a descendant of Gideon at all. Only Abimelech is. You are Canaanites, and you're descendants of Hamor. And why should you follow this man any longer? And then he says in verse 29, Oh, if only these people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said a challenge to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. And when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Take note, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they are here they are fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. Zebul knew that Abimelech had an army of men that could easily conquer the men that this man Gaal would be able to put together to fight against him. And he's on Abimelech's side, one of the few. But he sent this message to Abimelech to begin the process of taking that which Jotham had spoken to become a reality. He says in verse 34, So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. And when Gaal the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, Ah, you're seeing the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. He's trying to discredit what Gaal is actually seeing, causing him to think that it's just a, an illusion, just, just a, a, a mirage or a figment of your imagination. It's not really men at all. It's just the moving of the trees on the hillside. So he's dissuading him into thinking that there's an attack underway. He wants to allow Abimelech to have the advantage to suddenly attack. And that is exactly what takes place. So Gaal spoke again and said, See, the people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree, or the oak tree. So he sees now, it's not only coming down from the mountain, but he's being surrounded by companies from different directions. He realizes now he's in very, very deep trouble. He was not prepared for this. And now, it says in verse 38, Zebul reveals. Then Zebul said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now with which you said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out, if you will, now and fight with them. Had no choice. Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. 
And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Aruma, and Zibul drove out Gaal and his brothers, so that they would not dwell in Shechem. Sent them out of the city, out into the plains, where they'd be easy prey. And so it came about on the next day, verse 42 says, that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech, and so he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So a great slaughter has taken place against the men of Shechem that were following this man Gaal. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 45 says, So Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. Sowing it with salt would prevent anybody from being able to plant any kind of vegetables or produce for a good couple of seasons because of the salt in the soil. He says in verse 46, Now when all the men of the Tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Beareth. Remember the god that they served, the Baal Beareth? They had a temple there and they had a tower built alongside that temple where they worshipped that god. And they entered into that temple, those who were remaining. And it was told them, the Bimelech, verse 47 says, that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. Sort of what Gideon had said to the men that were following him. Do as I have done. Although this particular doing is a very evil thing indeed. It says in verse 49, So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. In fulfillment of Jotham's statement, the fire from Abimelech will devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. Just as Jotham had said, so it was done. Verse 50 says, Then Abimelech went on to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. So he didn't stop in Shechem. He's angry. He wants blood. And he wants to make sure that all of these people in this immediate region, in the region of Ephraim, are going to be following him as their king. He's making a point. He's coming down very hard against them so that there'll be an oppression by him that will result in obedience to his commands. But, verse 51 there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. Uh-oh, sounds like he's going to have an easy time of it again. They've set themselves inside this tower, and they may or may not realize it, but that's how Shechem was ultimately defeated. And now Abimelech has the same opportunity to do the same thing that he did in Shechem. However, God has other plans. Verse 52 says, So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But, this is the second but, and this is a good but, although God isn't included in this, it says, but a certain woman, and that's almost as good as but God, but a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, A woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Game over. Again, in fulfillment of what Jotham had said, that the people in Shechem would die by the hands of Abimelech, and Abimelech would also be destroyed. And it's exactly what has taken place. He attempted to burn that tower with fire, 
but he was struck in the head by an upper millstone dropped by a woman at the top of the tower. I don't know if you've ever played marbles in your younger days. I remember one particular game of marbles that I loved to play. It was a game where I would take a cardboard container, probably something along the size of what you might find Quaker oats in. It was the same then as it is now. It's a round container and it has a cover that you can remove and we would take that cover and cut a hole in the cover about the size of a quarter. We put the cover on that container and we would have a bunch of marbles and we would try to drop a marble through the hole from chest height and the one who dropped the marble through the hole would win all the marbles that were left by the opponent. So it was a very fun game. I don't remember if I did all that well, but it required a certain amount of accuracy. From that distance, even just a few feet, dropping a marble through that small hole wasn't all that hard. Here's a woman who's standing at the top of a tower, however many feet high it may have been, and she takes this millstone. It's an upper millstone, what they would use by hand to grind wheat, not a millstone that you would find in a large mill, uh, as you typically might find in auction pulling, but this was a stone that probably weighed about 10 pounds, maybe 15 pounds, and she's at the top of the tower, and she looks down, and she sees Abimelech standing there, ready to ignite those brush that he's brought to burn the tower down, and she takes careful aim and lets it go. Bullseye. She hit him right in the square in the head. But he doesn't die immediately, obviously, as we've just seen. And so he says to his sword bearer, Come, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me a woman killed me. He knows he's going to die, but he doesn't want the shame of being spread abroad that he was killed by a woman. That had happened to another individual many years before. And he was a laughingstock of Israel. He didn't want to become a laughingstock of Israel. So she wasn't the one who actually killed him. But she certainly did a good job in beginning that process. The man was dead. And it was just as Jotham had predicted. So it says in verse 56, Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It's always the case. It's always been so. Still is today. We needn't take any vengeance upon ourselves, my brothers and sisters. We know that God is in control. And we know that He is capable of dealing with those who come against us. Let us be mindful from this story of how depravity falls into the lives of people who fall away from God. Because they had turned away from the Lord, He allowed all of these events to take place. It's one of the saddest portions of Scripture recorded for us in the book of Judges. There are others. But it gives us a glimpse into that period of time between one judge and the next where they had fallen so far away from God that this is the kind of result that took place. They worshipped other gods, but they also became so evil, so wicked, so depraved, that they would allow such things to take place and not repent of it, not feel badly about it. How can people be so terrible, vile, angry, evil, wicked as they are. Look around you today. You see what's going on all over the world. Riots, angry people, angry mobs. It's getting worse by the day. They don't really know the truth. Those of us who do know the truth can see how terrible it is for them to fall into such a state of depravity as they have fallen. 
but they have fallen into that state because they do not know the one and only true God. And so it's easy to see how evil can completely change the mindset of men and women throughout the world. And it is getting, as I said, worse by the day. There are so many things taking place in the world, in this country, as well as in Europe, in Australia, all over the world, where people want to live good citizens of Western civilization are being taken advantage of. We're in a place where danger abounds and we don't really have any way of doing anything about it unless we put our trust in our God. Psalm 37 is one of the best psalms to go to in times like this. Because Psalm 37 is a psalm that tells us that we should not worry. Do not fret what men can do to you. Do not fear what might come as a result of the depravity of souls all over the world and around us today. Know that God is able to care for you. He does love us and will not forsake us. That's his promise to us. Now, if any of us fall through persecution, through any kind of tyranny that might take place in our own neighborhoods, don't be dismayed over that. We're going to be looking in our study in the book of Acts, beginning with Sunday, this coming Sunday. The story of James, the brother of John. He was a faithful servant of God. God was using him, along with all of the others, in that city of Jerusalem to save many, many people. But there came a time when God chose to allow James to be killed. And he was. We're also going to look at Peter. Peter would have been killed if the king, who wanted him dead, was allowed to do it. But God didn't allow that. There's a reason for that. Each one of us has a time that God has chosen. It's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. So don't fear if some of us may end up losing our lives because we are followers of Christ. It would have been God's will for that to happen if it does happen that way. But know this, none of us should ever fear what men can do to our bodies because they can kill our bodies but they can't destroy our soul. That's what we rely on, our eternal existence, because God has promised it in his word. So I leave you with this, my friends. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws nigh. Be prepared. Don't be scared, because God is on our side. Amen. Grace and peace.